I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. I remember reading Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar's book, The Mad Woman in the Attic, in college. It's a landmark 1979 feminist analysis of Victorian literature, and it made me look at Mr. Rochester in an entirely new way. Not really a good one. All this is to say, Sandra Gilbert has been a feminist for a long time. Her summer cover story for us in the labyrinth of Me Too uses her decades of experience agitating within the feminist tradition as a springboard for looking at how far Me Too has come and how far the movement and the world have to go in achieving feminism's goals. Her essay follows three acts, an analysis of Me Too that places it in a mythic tradition, her qualms about certain directions the movement has taken, and her open questioning of what we do with the art of offenders. She joins us from Berkeley to talk about her essay. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So the opening images of your essay for us are really evocative, the minotaur of the center of the labyrinth of Hollywood. But in the way that these stories have unfolded in the press, you draw the analogy that we're devouring them like the audiences of Greek plays who fixate on Olympian turmoil, except, you know, celebrities instead of gods. So do you see a tension between how horrible these stories are of rape and sexual harassment and how they've been covered in the media? I I guess I do. I I guess um, one of the things that I was at least implicitly trying to point to was how glamorous the celebrities were who were obviously had been wounded by by Harvey Weinstein and and others and you know the sort of drudging daily houseworker or waitress who really suffers in a way much more from sexual harassment um in one sense I suppose the the glamour of these initial stories was was good because it drew our attention to the horror of the situation. It was so exaggerated. I mean, Weinstein really does look like a horrible bull beast. But in another sense, there was was something distractingly lubricious about the way the stories initially were introduced to us. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's changed? I mean, you write that you were are worried that Me Too's focus on Hollywood sexual harassment might eclipse care workers and waitresses and other categories. What makes you worry? And, and are you still worried? Do you think that Me Too has broadened to approach those issues? 
I think Me Too has absolutely broadened and has has uh, turned our attention to um, sexual violence in the workplace. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit disconcerting that that might not have happened without these glamorous stories. I mean, nothing is ever going to be enough until we turn things over completely. Nothing, nothing is really enough. Um, you know, we have to we have to go back to the beginning and to the origins of all this and and rethink it. But oh, it's much better that this has been widening and broadening. Um, I just hope that it'll work on the factory floor, and in the local firehouse, and in the local police station, and in the local elementary school, where all of these things are happening much more silently and in many different forms, not always in the form of sexual harassment, but in the form of differential pay, differential promotions, differential treatment. You want everything to be changed. Right. So when you say, like, go back to the beginning and change all of this, I mean, how do you envision that happening? You've been, you know, a feminist for most of the 20th century, if not most of your life. So, I mean, where do you start? Well, in a curious way, it's extraordinary how much has happened. Um, for because of some work that I'm doing, I've been rereading the writings of Joanna Russ, The Female Man, which she published in 1975. And in The Female Man, uh, it is presented as a, a completely utopian and fantastic possibility that a woman might have a wife. Uh, well, now we're living in a world where my daughter has a wife. It's a world that Joanna, who died a few years ago, could not have imagined. Well, she may have known by the time she died that it was happening, but but at the time that she wrote the female man, where she was she was going to the very edge of her imagination, she was she was going out into the stars trying to imagine a a feminist utopia, and that was what happened in her feminist utopia, and it only could happen because it was in a world without men, but here we are in a world with men, and yet it is happening, um, so I you know things. We don't realize how much has changed in a way because the change has been slow enough and it feels subtle enough, though it is radical. We just we just don't want it to change back. Um, we're on the edge of having to worry about it changing back right now. Right. I mean, you know, in the 70s, domestic abuse within a marriage wasn't a crime nor was right. marital rape. So it's right. astonishing. Right. right. So how do you want to see Me Too go? How do you see feminism going in the future in your, you know, your own feminist utopia? Forget what everyone else has written. I I want to see Me Too uh, uh, be as it has, as it is becoming about every one of the great feminist issues of our time. Uh, I want to see it be like the, the Women's March on Washington which was so moving. I want to see that keep happening. What's so troublesome about feminism, you know, is that historically it comes in waves and then the wave sort of withdraws. And then there's another wave and then the wave withdraws. And then you have to sort of learn all over again what the problems are. Everybody has to learn. Oh, yes, this is a problem. So we, but we keep making little advances between waves, or really I should say big advances between waves, but then we forget how much there is to do. So when you say the great issues of feminism, what do you mean? Equality, power, control over one's body, equal pay for equal work, 
equality in the household, which is we still don't have. Things that are as simple and as evidently impossible in our country as childcare. You know, I, I could go on and on. The same kind of access for women writers to publication that men writers get. An acknowledgement of women's history and women's literary traditions, women's place in the world. You know, in the 70s, when I was going on airplanes a lot to give a lot of talks, I would carry around a picture of, I think it was the National Security Council or something, which was a bunch of men sitting around a table with a woman standing behind them holding a coffee pot. And I could still carry a picture like that. That's not the world that feminism wants. So in the second arc of your essay, you bring up two stories that have, in your view, dominated our thoughts about sexual assault and harassment. Um, And some of the pushback we've gotten from readers about your essay has to do with your descriptions of the Brock Turner rape case at Stanford, about which you ask, are these ambiguous traumas what feminism has actually been about? And invariably, alcohol always comes up in rape cases or sexual assault cases, especially when it comes to how much the survivors, often women, have consumed. How would you respond to the statement made by the survivor in this case, in which she said, alcohol is not an excuse. Is it a factor? Yes. But alcohol was not the one who stripped me, fingered me, had my head dragging against the ground with me almost fully naked. Having too much to drink was an amateur mistake that I admit to, but it is not criminal. Um, Well, but alcohol was the one who stripped her and fingered her. I mean, she goes on to admit that both, both of them were drunk, and how they managed to get together to find themselves together behind the dumpster is not clear to anybody. Uh, it doesn't help that, you know, she was so inebriated that she completely blacked out and couldn't remember. I don't want to sound like a, a, a temperance fighter because that's the last thing I am. I, I, I like to drink myself. But um, it's dangerous to go to a party and drink that much. And I, I do think that we have to have some agency we have to be able to make decisions for ourselves as, as uh, feminists. This is not in any way to defend his behavior. Uh, he behaved like a real a-hole, you know. But, you know, he was three years younger than she. He was a college freshman who clearly didn't know how to handle alcohol, clearly didn't know what to do. Of course she shouldn't. She shouldn't have had that experience. She shouldn't have had to wake up in a hospital wondering what had happened to her and discovering that her body had been violated in ways that she had not consciously agreed to. Um, But there's a certain sense in which you have to wonder what he consciously knew he was doing. Um, he, He knew he was doing something. He seems to have known he did something wrong. He ran away. It's just a terrible, unfortunate story, and I, I wish that I wish that this weren't the story that we, we are fastening on because I think that there are so many date rape stories that are so much worse where someone is given a date rape drug or where some alcohol is just poured down the throat of some innocent 16-year-old or where somebody comes into someone else's dorm room and just rapes her. I mean, there are so many more egregious cases than this one. In, in my feeling. I mean, I, I'm happy to have you disagree with me and tell me what the pushback is about because I'm interested. Well, I think the pushback, first of all, has to do with comparing the Ansari case and the Turner case because one of those was a convicted criminal. Even if he was a freshman in college, what mm-hmm. he did was illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think the other pushback, too, is that men get hopelessly drunk on a daily basis and they never have to worry about their personal safety. So shouldn't we be fighting for a world in which it, I mean, obviously getting hopelessly drunk is not great for your liver, but it shouldn't be bad for other parts of you. It shouldn't be bad for your, you know, your sense of sexual well-being. Well, I think men do have to worry about their safety if they get helplessly drunk. They can, they can, you know, be pickpocketed. They can be beaten up. They can be can be murdered. They can be, in fact, raped. Um, it's not good for anybody to get so drunk. Um, it's just that to moralize about this case, to allegorize this case, is to bring in this other factor. Um, I I don't know how you can ensure the safety of a helplessly drunk young woman if she is alone with a helplessly drunk young man. Um, I just I just don't know what even I, I wonder what a physician would say about it. There's so many ways in which this story can be turned and twisted and uh, reimagined. Listen, I don't think that what he did was right. I don't want to be seen as excusing or defending somebody who who really did a wrong thing. But I, I do think that there are ambiguities in the situation that are worth contemplating. So in the final arc of your essay, you consider what to do with the art of an offender. Right. What do we do with the art of a Woody Allen or the Cosby show? What happens? D.H. Lawrence, who has also been uh, defined as an offender, once said, never trust the teller, trust the tale. If Woody Allen makes a wonderful movie like Annie Hall, I'm going to trust it because of what it is, independent of its auteur. Um, I do think that it's true that you can look through the works, and I try to say this at the end of my essay, that you can look through a lot of problematic works and find inscribed in them the problematic thoughts and feelings of their authors. Um, so, for example, the New York Times film critic A.O. Scott looked through some Woody Allen movies and thought he, he could see in them uh, Woody Allen's preoccupation with young girls. Clearly you can when, when he's, you know, in, in a number of these movies. Manhattan, <laughs> most egregiously. Manhattan I find uncomfortable, that's true. And that's a flaw in Manhattan, that it's so uncomfortable even though it's got wonderful moments in it. It's it's really flawed by that. Um, but a lot of his other movies don't really have that, or if they have it, it's elliptical. It's not really it's not really glaring. Um, or what can I say? I mean, the, I tried to give a little more weight to the problems in, in the in the operas of, of Richard Wagner, which are, you know, I mean, Wagner was an anti-Semite, and he might sing in one of his greatest operas. The, the heroine is a prize. She's a gift. She's, I mean, it's the worst thing from a feminist perspective. But at the same time, because these works are so great and so compelling, they expose cultural assumptions that are, that are important for us to be able to analyze and dissect. I mean, some of the greatest of certain kinds of artists is that they are in touch with some, you know, root imaginings in our culture that they then dramatize in their works. And we learn a great deal about the world we live in 
and its underlying beliefs from reading or listening to or watching their works. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone is really arguing that we should, or, you know, only straw men are arguing that we should take all of these works and throw them in a bucket and never listen to them ever again. Right. But I do think it raises the interesting question with living artists in particular. Like Roman Polanski has lived abroad to escape criminal charges for raping a 13-year-old. Yeah. And his most recent movie came out last year. So he's a working director. He's actively making money from his movies. And he's never faced any punishment, any jury. So does that change the equation? I mean, I say this as someone who loved Repulsion. I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. And weirdly, quite a feminist movie. But also it makes me really uncomfortable because I know that about Polanski. Yeah, right. Yeah, I I think that's true. We might not want, we should not want him to profit when he hasn't been punished for what he did. But there's an autonomy that the work has. You really want to get rid of the author. I mean, you might want to send him to jail for having done what he did. You probably do. We should want to do. Does that mean that we shouldn't see the movies? If someone who is in jail for good reason, for murder, has written a great novel, should we not read it? Um, This is a really serious intellectual and philosophical question. I'm not saying that I have easy answers, but... um, But it's worth thinking about it that way. So what about the case of like a Woody Allen who also, you know, hasn't been punished for what he did, but, you know, who for nebulous reasons never officially faced charges? Do you think that's an analogous case or is he more like a Wagner? Well, the Woody Allen case is, you know, it's so complicated because everybody keeps saying something different. Um, I I tried. I tried. Essentially, at the time that I was writing this essay, I I tried investigating it, and it was made easy because A.O. Scott was so obsessed with it. And then there was also someone who had gone to Princeton to the library where Alan's papers are held and found that there is, throughout his papers, an obsession with with young girls, a virtually pedophiliac obsession. But but nonetheless, what what he did or did not do to his daughter, as is never is not clear cut. Um, he maintains his innocence. Some in his family maintain his innocence, and some in his family maintain his guilt. I I don't feel that I can judge because I don't know enough about it. Ronan Farrow is a wonderful writer, and he certainly has been very passionate about his father's guilt. I would be inclined to believe him, but but still, it's not you know. It's not 100% certain. I mean, in Polanski's case, we, we know that that's something that really, really happened, right? Well, Dylan Farrow has come out and, you know, wrote a moving essay a couple of years ago in which, you know, she spoke out as an adult saying that this really did happen to her. Oh, I read it and I saw a statement that she made online. I saw her in a, in a video and she's very believable. Nonetheless, since she was so young and... I, I, in my own life, I know people who have suffered from various kinds of false memory syndrome. I just, I just I can't really say that I'm 100% convinced one way or another. Um, that said, I think that people who feel very strongly about it probably should not support his movies, um, which is a pity because some of them are so funny. <laughs> 
We've got links in the show notes to Sandra Gilbert's cover story, as well as a variety of other essays that cover these subjects, from A.O. Scott's Reckoning with Woody Allen to Claire Detterer's essay in the Paris Review about the art of monstrous men, as well as the full statement from the survivor in the Stanford rape case. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.